Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Acton, Acton, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, from Messina in Sicily. It's an absolutely glorious early October day. Um, I'm standing on the car ferry that, that basically goes on a loop back and forth between Messina on the kind of northeast tip of Sicily and um, Villa de Giovanni, which is on the other side of the straits. And literally, it's, you know, it's two and a half miles, three miles across, something like that. And I'm, I'm looking at the toe of Italy now, the sort of green, grey, bluey mountains. It's all very Mediterranean, the twi- twinkly Mediterranean sea below me. I can see the, the bottom of the sea and a row of other ferries along the seafront here at Messino. And of course, you know, for me, this just means the end of the Sicilian campaign and the start of the Italian campaign. I mean, this is where it's all at, crossing from the island of, the first island of Europe into the mainland of Europe. Um, And it's also where the Germans, of course, escaped 39,800 or whatever it was of them, managing to escape and some 60-odd thousand Italians, plus about, I don't know, 10,000 vehicles, something like that, got across these straits. And, you know, again, I think about all those troops that got away at um, Dunkirk, some 338,000. And you think about here and you think about the challenges, you know, it's nothing like as difficult a proposition. You're you know, very difficult place to attack um, an evacuation from here. You've got mountains either side of you. Very, you know, you've got some 333 anti-aircraft guns um, arranged along both sides of the straits. And it really is very narrow. This is the, these are the Straits of Scylla and Charybdis from the, from the Odyssey and of Homeric times. You know, so they are incredibly narrow. Um, and I don't think you can apportion any blame to the Allies at all for not stopping the evacuation. And I'm also reminded about a chap whose journal I managed to get hold of from the uh, Tagebuch archive and um, the uh, Dari archive in Germany in Emmendingen in the Schwarzwald in the Black Forest uh, and actually I was there like just last week but Werner Steppenbach he uh, he was in the 15th Panzergrenadier Division and he had a really bad foot you know this is beginning of the Sicilian campaign in the beginning of July 1943 and this was absolutely symptomatic of the fact that the Germans were hastily cobbling together divisions with whoever they could get hold of and basically Steppenbach had had an ingrowing toenail that had gone septic and so he was a sort of semi-walking wounded 
when he got out to Sicily. And the whole idea was he would just join the division, get better, and then kind of join join his um, his fellows in his, um, I think it was an anti-aircraft um, uh, regiment attached to the 15th Panzer Grenadier. Anyway, basically, he got stuck there, him and a few comrades. You know, they were left behind as, as suddenly, you know, the Allies attacked and suddenly it was important for the 15th Panzer Grenadier to get out of the western part of of Sicily and, and join the Hauptkampflinie, the main defence line. And they were left there. And they suddenly woke up one morning they were just abandoned. And well, I'm just looking down into the sea now. There's hundreds of silvery stomached fish glinting in the evening sun. Anyway, Steppenbach was left there and basically they had to, they suddenly realised what they're going to do is they had to, had to escape. So they ended up walking, having an 18 day march from very end of July when they were fit enough and his foot was improved, walking across basically two thirds of the entire island of Sicily. And on the 14th of August, you know, it's very near the end, the final evacuations taking place already. They walked from something like sort of six in the morning till 10.30 at night with just three half-hour breaks and the whole day. And then the following morning, they kind of crested a hill and there it was, there were the Straits of Messina that I'm looking at now. They were kind of, ah, oh, given a bit of extra hope, managed to make it down to the, uh, to the, the harbour side, you know, and they're basically wearing rags and bearded and filthy... And they found, um, um, they were sort of let through to, to join an evacuation ferry, barge or what have you. And there was a stack of rations on the side and they just dived into it. It was the first meat fibre they'd had in, in, in weeks. And they absolutely devoured it. And um, they managed to get across on the 15th of August. And of course, the whole campaign was finally completely over on the 17th. Overnight on the 16th, 17th, that was the last time any German troops crossed. And it's amazing to be here now and crossing pretty much the same route. There were four evacuation routes along here, not this precise spot where the ferry plies its trade back and forth across the straits, but certainly this stretch of water. The scene has obviously massively changed. It was bombed, I can't remember how many times, something like 78 times, something like that, by the Allies during the war and very badly bashed around. Although driving through the centre of Messina just a few, you know, half an hour or so ago, bits of it were still pretty nice. And it's amazing now I've got the sun, I'm looking up into the, the sun, which is still quite high up in the sky. Um, although the days are obviously shortening and you know, the mountains behind are a kind of sort of hazy blue and then the sea twinkling behind me. And of course it's might be later in the year than when that evacuation was taking place, but not so very later in the year from when the um, 8th Army started to move across. First Canadian Division and the British 5th Infantry Division. And they would have crossed this same route. And anyone who's listened to this podcast before will know what a fan I am of walking the ground. I'm not walking the ground at the moment. I'm obviously... Now moving, we're off. We're we're now crossing the straits. I'm on water, but just to be here and to imagine those coastlines lined with those anti-aircraft guns, the kind of the fear of that you would have had as a troop trying to evacuate from here, the kind of desperation, the sense of part of a defeat, the British 
coming into the town, the Americans coming into the town, getting half an hour ahead of eight armies, troops to the centre of town, that sort of slight rivalry that was taking place. And then just a couple of weeks later, the first few days of September 1943, Eighth Army moving across the first units, those Canadians and British 5th Infantry Division moving across the Straits, ahead of the planned Operation Avalanche, the US 5th Army's assault on the beaches of Salerno, which I'll be going to in a few days' time. But first, I'm following in the footsteps of Eighth Army. I'm heading over to Calabria, Reggio, the toe of the boot of the Italian mainland. And it's brilliant to be here. Uh, so when I was writing my book on Sicily, I was following a fellow called David Coles, who was a platoon commander in the 2nd Inniskillings, uh, part in 13th Brigade, which was part of the 5th Infantry Division, which sort of battled its way up the kind of eastern side of Sicily and across the plain of Catania. And he went on um, into the boot of Italy and beyond. And so I'm, I'm looking at him and his diary-based memoir for the book I'm doing on Casino. And they arrive and he talks about the sort of the green hills that are on immediately rising up from the sea. And we've just come across um, the straits and got off the ferry and, and moved up this road. And, and he says, our objective was first the top of a large green mountain called Monte San Nicolo, which rose some 1,400 feet above us. And then beyond that, a little village called Orti. The importance of what some bright spark nicknamed Naughty Orti was that while on our side, it could be approached only by mule track, on the far side, it was connected by road to the rest of Italy, so that it could be held by enemy troops and artillery with a secure line of retreat. Well, we've just moved up this road that they would have taken, the exact same road. He goes, the climb was a tough one, only some two miles in distance, but steep and precipitous, up a winding mule track, toiling up the mountain under a burning sun and weighed down by a barrow load of personal military hardware. I felt less like a mountain goat than a kebab on a grill. All I wanted in life at that moment was a sip of water and I'm standing on this same route it's been tarmacked um, asphalted at some point but you get a real sense of it there's a little sort of valley of acacias on the right side of me and there's a little sort of ridge line behind me are the Straits of Messina and the kind of the blue grey mountains of Sicily rising up from the sea and there on the top of the hill right in front of me is a monastery of San Nicolo um, and that's where I'm heading next. Well, I'm now, I've now climbed up the 1400 foot mountain of Monte San Nicolo and I'm in the kind of sort of parking area for the monastery and looking back, um, the same view that David Coles would have looked at with the second inner skillings having, having yomped up here. And I've got to say, you know, the, the road up has been past lots of huge bushes of cactus with their flat table tennis bat leaves and vineyards. And then we've gone into a, an area of pines and eucalyptus trees. Now we're surrounded by eucalyptus trees and cypresses. And it is a hell of a view. There's the rising really blue-grey mountains of, of Sicily. Another boat crossing the straits, the sun sort of lowering in the sky and glinting on 
on the water. And but how? Listen to this then. He says, by 10.15 a.m., the leading companies have reached the top of San Nicolo, which is where I am now. And the rest of us were there not long after. Though it was clear that a German observation post had watched us coming, they'd withdrawn at the last moment and there was no resistance. The top proved to be a pleasant, flat expanse of grassland with some trees and a prosperous farm at one end and vineyards at the other. Well, I'm looking at exactly that. It was, however, the view looking back down the hill that enchanted our eyes. It was breathtaking. In the background, the great hills of Sicily and the Messina promontory broke the horizon. Then there was the narrow stretch of dazzling blue water that ran between the coasts of Sicily and Italy. Looking down from where we were, these famous straits, the ill-starred Scylla and Charybdis of the ancient world, appeared little wider than a river and as flat as glass. Well, it's amazing all these years later to be looking at it pretty much exactly the same view. Wow. Quite something. Well, I've just clambered up to a, a fairly steep hill. I'm now deep in Calabria, um, very close to a town called Catanzara. Catanzaro, rather, which sort of lies in a saddle between two ridges of, of mountains. Um, about, I don't know, 15 miles inland from the sea uh, on the southern boot of Italy. And I'm on a hairpin bend. I'm on a hill overlooking a hairpin bend. And I'm pretty certain this is the place that's depicted in Farley Mowat's account and No Birds Sang about his time with the Hastings and Prince Edward's regiment. And... Basically, he was told to, they, they got um, Catanzaro Lido very quickly, which is right on the coast. And then they were told to go in and take Catanzaro itself. And a captured Italian officer said, well, up at Catanzaro, there's quite a big Italian garrison. And Major Kennedy, who was the acting CEO in the absence of Lord Tweedsmere, who was ill, told Moat to go get off his arse and go and lead a patrol and go and take Catanzaro and do a kind of recce up the road. So he went up this mountain road, this winding road, and he said it all started to feel rather good about themselves. The air was fresh, which it absolutely still is, I have to say. It's beautifully fresh this morning. Um, he said he looked back to the somnolent hills. I'm looking back at the somnolent hills now. They do look very somnolent and in the kind of sort of blue haze. Again, there they are, looking all very hazy. And everything was absolutely fine until he turned a hairpin bend and then suddenly was facing down an Italian 75mm anti-tank gun. And I'm trying to think of where it would be, and I, I, can't, I, I can't think it could be anywhere other than here. This is such an obvious place. It's a bend in a road. There's a sort of a gorge between two hills. I guess each hill is probably, you know, 100, 120 foot high. I'm probably 100... Yeah, 120 feet above the road, something like that. This is the perfect place to sight a 75mm gun. And I've looked on the map and I've scanned it. And this is the only potential hairpin, series of hairpins anywhere in this region is where I am now. So I'm going to put my neck out and say, this is where it was. And I always, and I know I keep banging on about it, but there's something very exciting about walking the ground and being in places and seeing things that were seen all those years ago in the autumn of 1943. But 
also with a view which is obviously, you know, much the same. The hills are the same, the mountains are the same, the fold of the land's the same. The roads are now asphalted and tarmacked. They're no longer Strada Bianca, you know, these white dirt roads that, that Italians have. But otherwise, it's the same view. And you just get this incredible sense of how it all fits together. And I'm looking out now at some wind turbines on the top of the hill, but there in the distance is the Ionian Sea. And very splendid it looks too on this glorious October day. Much sunnier and much more pleasant than it was back in 1943, because as everyone knows, winters in the war were terrible. Well, I've come to, I've come along the coast road and it's been quite a journey actually. It's, it's really, this is a really tough part of Italy. This is Calabria, it's the poorest part of the country and you can sort of tell that as you walk along, as you drive along the coast road. Which is, for the most part, kind of is about a kilometre or so inland. And, you know, there's just no farming. The soil is really rough and sandy. And one town after another of just sort of senza speranza, yeah, without hope, I would say. Um, it's been quite depressing, really. And, and you kind of think, well, it's this beautiful Mediterranean coastline, but it's just, it's just not. It's, it's, it's really grotty, really tough. You can imagine in summer, it's just brutal. Um, lots of sort of litter all over the place. Um, and I've just pulled over now. I've finally got to Crotone, which was um, a port that was heavily shelled by the Royal Navy in the summer of 1943. Um, but also has an airfield. And I'm pretty sure this is where Mackie Steinhoff um, went with JG27 after the um, after Sicily. Um, and it is still being used as an airfield, although it's pretty overgrown and looking a bit run down like the rest of the coastline. And it's sort of, it's slightly perched on a kind of flat plain overlooking, there's a sort of plateau, which is sort of above the sea, not, not much, um, Behind the sort of, I guess, about 10 miles inland, the rising mountains looking kind of sort of creamy blue-grey in the, in the morning sun. Um, lorries and trucks hurtling past on the road beside the runway. Barbed wire fencing all around it. But, gosh, this would have been a, this would have been a hard assignment back in the war. And again, you get a kind of a flavour of, of what it must have been like. I mean, it's just big, flat, open, wide expanse. Perfect place to build an airfield. But, yeah, in the summer and early autumn of 1943, by goodness, the, the sun would have been beating down um, absolutely relentlessly. And, and I remember so clearly from Mackie Steinhoff's Sicily diary, that, that sense of kind of unremitting heat and lack of shade and just toughness and I suppose you know we're not very far from Sicily here and you're getting the same sense of that this open place there's lots of sort of sort of bushes and overgrown brambles and grass that hasn't been cut derelict buildings I'm looking at a little sort of flat roof square building with sort of the concrete's all a bit broken. There's wire grills over the windows. It just looks completely unkempt, overgrown, run down. But then beyond that are modern fuel tanks and, you know, it's, uh, 
But yeah, this is, it's a depressing place. I'm not going to lie. But anyway, our journey continues because um, now I'm heading to Toronto. Seen, of course, in November 1940 of the great attack by the fleet air arm. And of course, the reconnaissance work of, of uh, the Malta based photo reconnaissance teams, including Adrian Warburton. Um, but also where British paratroopers landed and took the port in September 1943. Well, I've made it to Taranto, and I've got to say that's a journey I don't want to repeat again, kind of for two-thirds of the 280-odd kilometres. It was just one lane of traffic each way. But now I'm standing on the edge of the fishing port, really, in, in the kind of Piccolo Mare, which is the kind of... There's a kind of sort of figure of eight lagoon on one side of Taranto and there's a there's two little islets there's there's St Peter and St Paul and I'm on one of the oldest parts and it's lovely some fishermen have just pulled up I'm looking over over into the sea and it's just a wash with sort of glittering silver um I don't know sardines or some kind of little fish it's just a vast swarm of them in the sea and very flat around here. It's completely different to Calabria, which is all sort of hills and mountains. And here it's much flatter here in Puglia, in the southeast part of the boot of Italy. Um, beyond, I'm looking across at a kind of, sort of low saddle ridge line, um, which climbs towards the southeast. And eventually um, you get to the Adriatic coast and the towns of Brindisi and Bari. And there's a strong smell of fish in the air and along the corniche, there's sort of palm trees and houses and streets set back from the main seafront. And I'm looking across onto the next island. Um, there's a sort of bastions around the edge and there's some Italian frigates uh, of the Italian Navy. Um, there's some fishermen here sort of angling from the, uh, from the corniche. And it's all rather lovely. It's sort of 24 degrees. It's a little breeze. Sky is blue, sort of streaks of cloud, high cirrus, a plane going overhead, 30,000 feet above. Um, and it's all very nice. But while this was also the, the scene of the famous attack by the fleet air arm in November uh, 1940, um, and actually the bit I'm looking at too is where two cruisers were hit most of the fleet was on the other side in the main part of the harbour on the other side of this island the reason i'm here of course is for 1943 and the invasion of italy by the allies and operation slapstick which was only put into place on the 6th of september 1943 so just three days before mark clark and fifth army were landing um, at salerno and two days before the official um, date for the italian surrender and it was put in place at the last minute by Eisenhower, given the green light. Although they'd been kind of thinking about it beforehand, but it, it wasn't in, it wasn't going to happen. But it it got put into action by Eisenhower because the Italian king Vittorio Emanuel II and the government under the head of Marshal Badoglio uh, made it clear that they were going to hand over the ports of Toronto and Brindisi to the Allies immediately. The Italian fleet was going to surrender and, and move to sail out to, to Malta, where it was going to go into Grand Harbour and Marshmallow Harbour and surrender. And so the Allies thought, well, actually, that's not a bad shout, um, because Taranto is still a massive port. Um, it hadn't been destroyed. None of the um, docks had been destroyed or anything like that. 
Um, the port was still fully functioning, a major port in the southern Italy. It would dist- uh, an Allied landing there would distract away from um, from the the landings at Salerno, or so it was hoped. Um, it was only lightly defended by the Germans, and it was felt that the Germans were unlikely to defend this part of southeast Italy. In fact, the only German troops here were the remnants of the 1st Fauschenjäger Division, who were kind of rapidly um, building up strength in a way that the Germans were just so good at doing, following their very severe uh, fighting that they'd, they'd seen on Sicily. You have to remember, the Sicilian campaign you know, was over on the 17th of August, and so we're only talking about a couple of weeks, well, three weeks in between. But anyway, the 1st Fauschenjäger Division are in this, this neck of the woods, but but... Taranto is lightly held by an Italian garrison and by the Italian fleet, of course. So, you know, it's one of the reasons why um, the Germans aren't particularly here um, in any kind of strength. And simply, they just don't have the, the numbers to be able to kind of be absolutely everywhere at all times. So for all these reasons, it seems like quite a good idea. Now, the only troops available to do this attack on, um, on Taranto um, was the first parachute division, but obviously, that too had had quite a bad time of it in Sicily. Um, the first battalion, parachute battalion, had had a really bad time at Primazzoli Bridge, you know, Operation Fustian and so on. The yeah, landing brigade, of course, had been pretty badly hit during um, its time at um, trying to get the Ponte Grande and the invasion on the uh, 10th of July. So the only two untried um, and un- untested units were the second parachute brigade and the fourth parachute brigade, but the fourth parachute brigade was under strength and neither had ever been in combat before. So they were brand new to combat. So that prompted some kind of concerns as well. Um, and on top of that, um, they'd never ever operated as a division before. But this was going to be the first time. But there were, again, of course, it wasn't as simple as that because the airland, the, um, the airlift capacity was taken up by the 82nd Airborne, what was left of it. They got the priority for their operations in support of Salerno, uh, Operation Avalanche. And there weren't many landing craft either, because they were taken up with operations in, in Calabria, in the Reggio, and also, of course, primarily for Operation Avalanche um, at Salerno. So they were actually going to be carried in two shifts. It was going to be the 1st Parachute Brigade and the 4th Parachute Brigade, plus the divisional headquarters with our old friend Major General Hopkinson. And then, um, and they were going to be taken by, by four cruisers, Penelope, Aurora, Dido and Sirius, all of whom are absolute old hands when it came to um, Mediterranean operations. You know, they've been involved in convoys. Penelope, of course, was an Aurora, a part of Force K that had wreaked so much damage in the latter part of 1941. Penelope became famous for being known as HMS Pepperpot. It was so badly damaged. But anyway, trusty cruisers, all four, and augmented by the mine layer HMS Abdiel and the American cruiser, the USS Boys, um, which had um, obviously been involved in Operation Husky as well. So this was a force, and there wasn't expected to be much problem with that because they didn't really need landing craft because they were just going to go more alongside the docks and jump out. Um, the only problem was the minefield outside the harbour of Taranto, which obviously hadn't been cleared at that stage. But obviously there was routes in. And at about three o'clock on the 9th of September, the same day that Operation Avalanche was launched at Salerno, 
the first ships reached the edge of the minefield and HMS Javelin snuck in and managed to negotiate in and then followed by, I think it was Dido and Boys. And the first lot of troops, which was the 4th Parachute Brigade and the 10th Parachute Battalion, managed to get in, land, get out and suffered no casualties whatsoever. And basically, the 1st Jäger Division bugged out. The fighting took place the following day as the Germans started their retreat northwards um, towards in the direction of Foggia. And in actual fact, um, they managed to get to Brindisi within 48 hours. And the idea was that should these landings here of Operation Slapstick at Toronto be successful, then they would subsequently bring 5th Corps, British 5th Corps, would land at Toronto as well and Brindisi, and so it did. Um, I think on the 18th of September, first with 78th Division, who'd, the Battle Axe Division, who'd fought through Sicily, and then the 8th Indian Division. Um, and they both were to play massive roles in the subsequent Italian campaign. But it's amazing to be here. It always is. It's always lovely to see how it all fits in. It's completely different to how I imagined. It's a very, very beautiful city, I have to say. The island I'm on, I've got the, the Castello Aragonese, which is the sort of remains of an old fort on the edge of the island. There's a lovely, lovely iron bridge, very ornate iron bridge that enables, which, which lifts up, um, which enables um, military, the, uh, those military cruisers that were in the Piccolo Mare to go in and out between the main part of the harbour and the small part. It's very busy here, very touristy. There's a British cruise tr ship in and lots of British tourists wandering around. Um, but it's a lovely place. And one of the more underwhelming military operations, really, of the invasion of Italy. Not a lot happened here, but great events happening here at Taranto. And quite a place. I mean, it is, it's a lovely place to visit. I mean, if anyone ever gets a chance to come to Taranto, I couldn't recommend it more highly. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. Lots to see, lots to do, uh, and an amazing place to visit. I'm going to try and cross the road without getting run over. Always a problem in Italy in busy places. But you'll be pleased to know I've successfully made it. Right, more in a minute. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly. See you in a moment. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A T L A S S I A N.com. Atlassian. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Well, I've now crossed back over to the uh, other side, the main open sea and to the port. And I can see the kind of industrial port over to my right beyond the, uh, beyond the Castello Aragonese, which is just on the other side of the inlet going to the Piccolo Mare. And the ship's at anchor and it's all looking very atmospheric. There's uh, some newlyweds being photographed beside an absolutely stunning statue overlooking the sea. There's the corniche with its lovely, elegant street lamps all along it. And beyond, away to my left, I can see the main part of the, the old port as well, the naval port, um, which was where most of the, the Italian ships were lying in harbour uh, in November 1940. And the sea is twinkly, the sun is shining on it. Um, just by the corniche, I can see. You know, I can see the stones on the seabed. Lots of traffic going past. It's absolutely stunning. It, it, it really is incredibly beautiful. Um, and incredible to be here. And and you suddenly get a sense of again of how it all fits together of why this was such a key port. I mean, the Allies must have been rubbing their hands together with glee when Bedolio announced that they were going to give up Taranto. Um, and in actual fact, the only casualties for Slapstick was on the 10th of September, the day after, when HMS Abdiel, the mine lair, was manoeuvring alongside one of the dock and hit a mine which had been left there. Um, and 58 men were killed, um, sailors and um, members of the 1st Airborne Division. They were the only casualties, really, in capturing Taranto. Um, a tragedy, of course, but, but none actually to... German bullets or German mortar shells or anything. What a place. What a lovely spot. And I guess it's sort of not on the beaten route, really, unless you're going in a cruise ship. It's kind of a bit off the beaten track. But worth that torturous drive along what I have to say is one of the roughest, most unattractive coastlines I've ever been across. Just town after town, sort of no heart, no soul. Um, Senza Speranza, I said when I was at um, Catrone, and wow, they really were. But here, there's plenty of Speranza, plenty of hope, because this place is vibrant and lovely and hugely impressive. Well, I've now just pulled off the road. I'm about, I don't know, 15 miles or so um, south of, or north rather, I should say, of Toronto. And I'm at a place called Masafra, and high on the hill above me, uh, well, not high on the hill, there's a sort of a rising hill amongst the flatness, and on the top of it, perched on the top of it in a way that only the Italians seem to do, really, um, is the town of Matola. Um, and Masafra was reached on the morning of the 
the 10th of September, so the day after. So you think they were just coming into port, you know, in the late afternoon of the 9th of September. And by the morning, they're kind of 15 miles north and they're here. And the, and the, and the Italians in, in Masafra, this place I'm at at the moment, which is now a place of kind of light industry, rather run-down light industry, it has to be said, um, came out to welcome the, um, the leading elements of a 156th Brigade um, as they entered here of, of the um, 4th Parachute Brigade. So 156th Battalion of the 4th of the Parachute Brigade. And then they ran into the Germans of Auschwitz-Jäger at Matola, this hilltop town. And I can completely see why the Germans would have wanted to uh, defend that uh, as opposed to this vast expanse of flatness down below. Um, you know, very dominating position up there. Um, and in fact, actually, the Germans didn't kind of hang around too much. Their, their job was just to kind of sort of harry and, and hold up the British advance, but basically to kind of move, move northwards as quickly as possible um, to what was going to be um, the next defensive position. And also, just a little bit further to the west from here is Castellanata. And this is where our old friend, Major General Hoppy Hopkinson, was killed. Um, and he was with the troops as they were entering the, just coming up to the uh, town of Castellanata. Uh, on a long straight road coming in, there was a German roadblock, a burst of machine gun fire, and that's what did for him. And that's about, oh, I don't know, about five miles or so due west of where I'm standing at the moment. Um, but yeah, that's Taranto done. I'm now going to head to uh, on my way up to Foggia, which is about 120 miles away. And actually, the uh, 1st Airborne Division followed the 1st Faustrumjäger Division all the way to Foggia. They captured it at the very end of September. I think Foggia was in, in British hands, Allied hands, by the 30th of September, 1943. That's 125 miles kind of north northwards. And all around there is this amazing flat territory, flat terrain, and a place where you could set up any number of airfields. And that was one of the main objectives of the Italian campaign, to establish the 15th Strategic Air Force from which you could further close the noose, tighten the noose around Nazi Germany and use it as a series of bases for the Strategic Bomber Force. Well, we've travelled all the way up that 125 miles from Toronto. Uh, we're now um, just outside, just to the west of Foggia, at a place called Amendola. And Foggia was a... Well, Foggia lies in the middle of this sort of extraordinary plain, flat plain. It's, it's, it's really a very peculiar part of Italy because it's so atypical. And what's also weird about it is on one side, on your kind of eastern side you can see this huge landmass rising up out of the plain sort of hilltop towns this looks like something out of sicily or something and this is the gargano peninsula and it's a little sort of it's like a sort of thumb that kind of sticks out of the um eastern side of italy on the adriatic coast and it's really weird because either side of it it's completely flat. And then there's this hilly bulge that sticks out into the sea. And then on the other side, you can see in the distance, sort of rising up again out of the plains to the kind of north and the northwest, you can see the Abruzzi Mountains. And it's in the Abruzzi Mountains that you've got Gran Sasso. And this is where Mussolini has taken in prison um, 
after he's deposed back in July. And then he's sprung by um, Otto Skorzeny, you know, landing in gliders and, um, not, you know, in those little Fiesler torches and whatnot up at the top of the mountains. But Amandola, which is where I am now, is about 10 miles to the east, due east of, of Foggia. And it's one of the many um, airfields. There's sort of 13 or 14 of them, including Bari, which is 50 miles away. But there's a load of them. So when you talk about the Foggia airfield complex, you're talking about a mass of different airfields. And this is one of them. It's still um, a, um, a, an Italian Air Force base, barbed wire and all, all around it and buildings. And there's a, there's a fighter jet on a stand by the main entrance. It all looks very sleepy. There's no one around, really. Um, but here it is, just in this sort of, you know, you can see why you build an airfield all around here and why you build many of them, because it's just, it's absolutely ideal. You can set up camp. You can land your, your, your heavy air, you know, your B-24s and your B-17 heavy bombers and your medium bombers as well, all part of the um, 15th Air Force. And from here, you've just got all the space in the world. Um, you're not going to go and crash into the Gargano Peninsula. You're not going to go and crash into the Abruzzi Mountains. Um, uh, you've got all the space you need in which to hold um, heavy bomber force. And, of course, that's why they're here. And it's also, because it's so flat, that's why the Germans bug out. And um, it's why they don't contest it very heavily in this southeast corner of, of southern Italy. Because, of course, you know, flat ground favours an advanced mechanised armed forces like the Allies and works against the Germans. What they want to do is get into the mountains where they've got eyes on the ground, where they can control the passes, where there's lots of rivers and lots of bridges to blow up and difficult narrow roads in which to mine. That's where you want to be. And, of course, that's where they're heading. And that's why this bit is taken comparatively easily. And that is one of the gambles that the Allies take in the planning for the invasion of Italy that really does work. Because they do get to Foggia by the end of September... Um, 1943, so just three weeks after they arrive, and um, it's all very straightforward. Um, and this bit works, and they're able to set up the 15th Air Force um, and operate and close the, you know, tighten the noose around Nazi Germany with their strategic air forces. So that's the plan. But it's quite a journey, and the one thing I would say, it is one heck of a distance. It really, really is, and particularly you know, the Canadians who are coming up from Reggio, from across the Straits of Messina, all through Catanzaro, which we were at this morning, all the way up and then up into the Abruzzi Mountains. It's quite a thing. It's quite a trek. And to do that in such short time, I think is really impressive. I mean, you know, you're not talking about motorways in those days. You're talking about very, very small, um, narrow roads, which they're having to navigate and negotiate. Now, someone's just come out and they're not very happy because I'm obviously recording um, and loitering outside an airbase, so I need to call off before I get arrested by the Italians. Cheerio for now. (laughs) 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.